Voyage. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, when I initially made the call to Wake Island, I made no mention of the fact that I had two foreign nationals on the boat. I I called up, I identified myself as Lieutenant Cameron Thurman, United States Naval Officer, and, and you know, with two crew, and left it at that. And um, and so when, when, uh, when we finally get that radio call back, you know, from Wake Island, like giving us permission to enter the lagoon, man, oh, that was just like, like the biggest weight in the world lifted off my chest. To Cameron's surprise and relief, he, Charlie, and Hiroki are welcomed with open arms as they set foot on dry land for the first time in 25 days, one of the most remote islands in the world, and an unincorporated territory occupied by the United States since 1899, Wake Island is in actuality a horseshoe-shaped atoll comprised of three islets and a reef surrounding a central lagoon. They gave us an air-conditioned place to stay. Air conditioning. Oh my God, it had been so hot. It had been so hot. And we each had our own room. Like, this was the first time in 25 days that, like, each of us had our own room with our own bathroom and our own shower. And, oh, it was it was so nice. It was just glorious. And we, we went down to the went down to the cafeteria and uh, and they had ice cream. And like, I mean, first of all, I mean, it was just the sweetest treat you could imagine. When you've been you gotta imagine you've been dehydrated, you've been hot, you've been hungry. You are really kinda, you know, at your emotional wits end over all this. And someone hands you an ice cream cone, and it is the best thing you've ever tasted. Plain vanilla, the best thing you've ever tasted. And Hiroki ate. <laughs> it was a buffet, and that, that kid went through like two or three times. The trio soon realizes just how sparsely populated this little slice of paradise truly is. Wake Island has no full-time residents, but there are approximately 100 people, many of them Thai nationals living and working on the island at any one time. And we check in and it's like, we're like, hey, you know, we, we want a provision. We want to do some stuff. And he's like, okay. He's like, uh, so uh, you want to start tomorrow morning at the bank. The bank is open from seven in the morning until eight in the morning. So you, you got to get there, you know, when it's open. I said, all right, no problem. So we go to the bank and and get some cash and i'm like well um you know we want to uh you know get some food 
and we want to get some gas and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, mail some stuff home or, you know, like souvenirs or stuff home. He's like, okay. He's like, the next place you need to go is the grocery store. So we go to the grocery store and, you know, we're standing outside this grocery store. It's closed. The guy from the bank shows up, opens up the grocery store, goes in and, uh, you know, it's like, all right, you know, get what you need. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's the same guy. And so, uh, you know, we go and we buy all these provisions and man, we are like in hog heaven. So we load up and he's like, go, he's like, uh, what else do you guys have to do today? And I'm like, uh, well, we need to go to the gas station and get some, get some, uh, diesel fuel. He's like, okay. He's like, well, the gas station, uh, is open for one hour and it's open from nine to 10. I'm like, okay. So, uh, so we go, you know, drive all the stuff back to the boat, load all the stuff on the boat. We go to the gas station, same guy. He's at, at the gas station, right? And so it turns out it's it's just one guy. And so, you know, he opens up the bank and it's open for an hour. And then he opens up the grocery store and it's open for an hour. And then he opens up the gas station and it's open for an hour. Then he opens up the post office and it's open for an hour. And then, I mean, you know, it's, but literally it's like one guy, you know, kind of, kind of going around. Despite its small size, there's more than enough space on the island for the trio to stretch their legs. There's a big lagoon inside of Wake Island, and, and part of it's deep, and, and boats can park there, and part of it's really shallow. And um, so one of the things that I really wanted to do was get away. And I, oh man, I just wanted like a little, you know. And so um, I had them drop me off, and they took the truck to, to go do whatever they want to do. And uh, I hiked around the island, and I, I went into the lagoon and just swam in the lagoon. It was beautiful. And I remember thinking, like, I'm looking around and I'm like, this is like Gilligan's Island. I mean, this place is gorgeous, you know? And, I'm, and this, like, completely clear water, just as, you know, clear as the water in your bathtub, you know? But but with a blue tint to it from the, from the sand and everything. Wake Island's idyllic beauty somewhat belies the fact that today its primary function is as a U.S. Air Force base, the strategic value of which made it a key target for the Japanese during World War II. I didn't know anything about Wake Island's history. Um, I don't think Charlie knew anything about Wake Island's history, and I know that Hiroki didn't know anything. I mean, the the old machine gun encampments are still there. The you know all the kind of remnants of World War II are still there, and there's memorials all across the island of the the men that were that were killed there. And um, inside, there's, there's a little, in the post office, there's a little kind of Wake Island Museum. What does it say? On December 8th, 1941, 34 Japanese bombers attacked Wake Island. Uh, Pearl Harbor was December 7, so it was coordinated attack. Yeah. Japanese forces continued to bomb the island for the next three days. On December 11th, the Japanese Navy attempted a landing but were driven back by American Marines and Air Force, resulting in the first tactical defeat experienced by the Japanese in World War II. The Japanese doubled their efforts and continued to bomb the island until some 900 troops successfully took the atoll. 
49 U.S. Marines and 70 civilian contractors were killed during the 15-day siege. You okay, Hiroki? Yes. On October 7th, 1943, Japanese Rear Admiral Shigematsu Sekibara ordered the execution of 98 U.S. civilian workers. Japanese occupation of the island ended upon their surrender to U.S. Marines on September 4th, 1945. The civilians. He killed them? Yeah. Apparently, one of them actually escaped, but he was recaptured and they beheaded him. Heavy shit, man. Yes. My grandfather. He fought in World War II. Japanese Navy. My grandfather was in the Marines. He was on a ship heading for Okinawa when the war ended, but his brother, my great-uncle Billy, he ended up getting captured. Spent pretty much the whole war as a POW. I do not know what to say. Listen, I, I grew up in South Carolina, first state to secede in the Civil War. My whole life, General Sherman was this guy who rode in and laid waste to the South for 27 days, destroyed homes, farms, towns, just total scorched earth, you know. It wasn't until I went to college, started getting out and exploring the world, I realized how much of the country looked upon this guy as a hero, when I'd been raised to see him as anything but. I, I know it may sound strange, but I guess all I'm saying is, I know how you feel. world's a big place, getting bigger all the time, you know. Say. It was a long time ago, man. Yes. Not so long ago. For me, one generation. My father and his brother were part of the Armia Krajova. My father fought the Germans in the West. His brother fought the Soviets in the East. And then the war ends, and you gotta live under the Soviets. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. You do not want to. I am grateful my daughters were born in the time of Lech and Sodernosh. They will never know anything but a Poland that is strong, independent. Before that... I mean, ten years ago, Charlie, I guess... Technically, you and I would have been enemies. Yes. Well, damn. We're practically a mini-UN. <laughs> it's a sobering experience, and yet in this place, at this moment, it is perhaps exactly what they need. A reminder that they may have set out from Hawaii as individuals, strangers in language, custom, experience, but in the miles since, they have become a unit, a crew. Despite the stay on Wake Island lasting just 24 hours, it is a much needed break, a chance to not only restock their supplies, but to renew their spirits as well. Wake Island was, was such a relief, you know what I mean? It's, it, it's also, it was like a... It's so funny because you're when you're when you're sailing in the boat, the ocean looks the same day after day after day, and so it's hard to even realize that you've gone anywhere. It just always kind of you know looks kind of the same, and then so all of a sudden you know you're on Wake Island and it's like, wow, like we we're really someplace different. Like we really have you know done something, and you know the guys at Wake Island were like wow, like you're in a tiny little boat to be, you know, crossing the ocean. And, and so that kind of, kind of, you know, upped our confidence and, you know, we're feeling a little bit like, yeah, yeah. Cameron, Charlie, and Hiroki depart Wake Island, the boat once again fully provisioned, more suitably this time, no more oatmeal, and their morale properly rejuvenated. 
The mood is really good. We get underway. Wake Island, you know, kind of disappears off in the distance. And the seas are, are big. Uh, not like scary big, but, the, you know, they're, they're fairly big. And, um, and so we cook our first meal, and I got seasick again. And <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was, I was only on dry land for 24 hours, and I got seasick again. So, so I threw up that night. I threw up the dinner that night, but I wasn't seasick for long. Really, I was only seasick for like, you know, half a day or whatever. Kind of got my sea legs back. Okay, all right. Now everything's okay. Now everything's going to be great. As Wake Island recedes behind them, they hit a snag in their daily radio contact routine. When planning for the trip, Cameron had set up a radio contact for the second leg of the journey, knowing their radio would eventually no longer be able to reach the shores of Hawaii. I had called the marina that I was, the, the Navy marina that I was going to be moving to, you know, to say, hey, you know, I'm coming. Do you have space for me? I'm bringing my boat. I'm going to be living on it. And, uh, hey, is there anybody there that has, like, a radio that I could talk to? And so the guy that runs the marina was like, well, you should talk to this guy. He's got a boat with a, with a radio on it. And I said, okay, great. He was, a, he was a retired Navy guy who stayed in Japan and lived on a sailboat in Japan. And, and I, I called him, but he never turned on the radio. Every day at the right time of day, we turned on the radio to the right frequency and attempted to call the dude in Japan. Now, what I learned was he was an alcoholic and that dude never once turned on his radio and so we were just sending a blind message out into space day after day that no one ever got so now after a couple of days we've kind of lost contact so so you know we're not able to really talk to anybody in the outside world we have, we're getting a weather report every day. Um, you know, there, there's just these, there are these stations that just kind of broadcast the, the general weather. Um, and so, you know, we're getting that. And we're starting to hear that, like, uh, there's a storm forming. And we're like, oh, that's, that's not good. You know, each day you get, you know, more information. And it, it starts to become apparent that, that we're going to get clobbered. So, like, okay. But, you know, the boat had been doing fine. I, I didn't really think it was going to be that bad, you know. I mean, some, some of the reports made it sound like, it, it, you know, it might be bad. But most of the – there was another storm that was going on up in the, in the northern Pacific that was really bad, like 40-foot waves and all this other stuff. And we're like, well, at least we're not there. It's hard for the three of them to fathom such stormy weather, given the smooth sailing the Lilano has experienced since departing Wake Island. The wind was right, the current was right, the boat was right, everything was kind of going in the right direction. And and the night before it got bad was probably one of the best nights at sea I, I'd ever had. The wind was coming from directly behind the boat. And so we had the, the mainsail out on one side and we had the, the Genoa, which is the other front sail out on the other side. And so in sailing terms, they call that wing and wing. So basically, you know, you got one big sail on one side of the boat, another big sail on the other side of the boat, the wind's directly behind you. And there was a beautiful moon. I mean, a full moon 
and it was a cloudless night, and the moon made a silver road right down the middle of the ocean. And I mean, it was literally like we were sailing on a moonbeam. You know, the ocean and the path in front of us was completely lit up by the moon and, and the moon was huge and it would shine through the sails. It made the sails kind of kind of glow like an angel's wings. I just remember thinking like, this is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen in my life. Like this is just an incredible experience. I wish, I wish all my friends could be here. I wish, you know, other people could see this with me. Like this is so phenomenal and all night long it was just beautiful like that but come sunrise things begin to take a turn for the worse the winds and waves steadily increase as the day goes on by nightfall the sky presents a stark contrast to the ethereal moonlit night cameron had experienced just 24 hours prior the the night after that was was really rough and i was i was driving and and the whole night you know, waves were breaking into the boat and I was just constantly getting, you know, doused with, with you know, seawater and spray and, you know, the boats lurching up and down and side to side. And you really had to, had to physically hold on to not get jostled from, you know, one side of the boat to the other. The lurching waves make it absolutely critical that they hook onto the boat via harness lest they be swept overboard into the roiling Pacific. As we've established previously, it was virtually impossible to get Hiroki to adhere to Cameron's harness rule. But as he prepares to head topside for his shift relieving Cameron at the wheel, Hiroki finally gets the message. And so when the waves were big, you kind of had to look out and you wanted the time opening the hatch, you know, so that a wa big wave didn't you know, like splash you as soon as you open the hatch. So he's kind of looking out for that. And it's loud. The, the wind is, is you know, I, I thought that it was roaring at the time. It turns out I didn't know what roaring was yet, but it was, you know, very loud. And I hear this kind of rumbling sound. And I'm like, uh, like, what's going on? And I, I turn just in time to see a large wave that's kind of rolling and breaking behind and beside the boat. And it crashes into the cockpit and it throws me from one side of the cockpit to the other. And I'm, I'm underwater and it's extremely violent. And I, I hit the mast and I hit the other side of the boat and I hit the lifelines. And I, I mean, it just, and I felt like, you know, I was like in a blanket and my eyes were covered and people were just like, you know, beating me with bats. And then it's all gone and I am underneath the lifelines on the other side of the boat from where I was sitting. So basically from the waist up, I'm washed overboard. So the only thing that's still like in the boat is like my, my hips and legs. And I'm kind of dangling out. And the only thing that prevented me from going over was my harness. And, and the line of my harness is like so tight, you could play violin on it. I mean, it is like, think, and, and everything hurts and you know I kind of wiggle back under the lifelines and kind of get back in the cockpit and the now the cockpit's filled with water and there's Hiroki and he's got his like face up against the porthole and his eyes are like huge because he's literally just seen me like 
washed overboard. And so, uh, so then he disappears. And I'm like, ah, damn it. Like, where's he going? And it turns out that Hiroki went to get his harness on because he realized in that moment that I would have been a dead man if I hadn't had my harness on. Never, ever after that did Hiroki not have his harness on. Despite Cameron nearly being washed overboard, the seas and winds gradually begin to subside. Though the Lilano and his crew are left thoroughly drenched, they are cautiously optimistic, hopeful that the worst is now behind them. Oddly, we had one day where it seemed like everything was better. The night was rough. The day was, was okay. It, you know, it wasn't that bad. Everything inside the boat had gotten soaked. Waves washing over the boat. You know, when, when you're in a big storm like that, little leaks just become, you know, constant, you know, dripping water. And so, um, and every time you have to open the hatch, you know, water's going to come dumping in. And I remember like everything inside the boat was wet. We, we pulled it all out and we had it out and we were trying to kind of dry it out. And it seemed like, you know, maybe this was, maybe that was it. Maybe it's, you know, the worst is over with and, and, uh, and, and things are going to be good. By like, you know, dinner time that night, it was really starting to get bad. And so we're like, okay, you know, like this is really, really bad and scary. But the sun set and everything just got worse. I mean, it got louder and rougher and darker and you couldn't see anything. I mean, the, the sky was pitch black. The only thing you could hear was like the roaring of the wind and it was this constant deafening. It was so loud and then the waves breaking and and the you know the ocean had its roar as well. It's like they were competing with each other to to deafen you. And the boat was was really bouncing a lot. Between the roaring wind and raging seas, Cameron and Charlie decide it's too dangerous to let Hiroki drive the boat. And so once again, Cameron is at the helm. It was so dark, you couldn't really see how bad it was. You, you knew it was bad, but you didn't know how bad it was. And so things progressively got worse and worse and worse. And I'm driving and Michael and Koji are down below. And we only had one sail up. We had the, the front sail up, which is the jib. We had the storm jib up, which is our smallest front sail and it's the thickest and it's you know the one that's that you know you're supposed to fly when when it's you know really stormy and i remember uh looking down at my hands and they were just uncontrollably shaking and i was like stop that stop shaking but i couldn't i was so scared i was you know trembling and then i became ashamed you know um there was no one on deck to see me it was pitch black, middle of the night, thousands of miles from land. Even if somebody had been on deck with me, it was so dark that they would have never seen me shaken. But I knew that I was shaken and I was ashamed because I thought like, man, like when I face death, I'm gonna face it, you know, stoic and, and like a man. And now here I am trembling like a child. And then I, you know, I, I kept saying to myself, Man, I gotta stop shaking so that I'll stop being afraid. And I know that that makes no sense. 
What you're thinking when you hear that is what I meant to say is I have to stop being afraid so that I will stop shaking. But that's not what I was thinking. In my mind, I was like, if I stop shaking, then I will stop being afraid. So basically, I just grabbed the wheel with, with both hands. And I didn't need uh, you know both hands on the wheel to drive the ship. But if my hands were on the wheel and I had a good grip, then my hands wouldn't shake. And if I wasn't shaking, then I wasn't afraid. But even as Cameron struggles to gain control over his fear. All of a sudden, there was just, pow! And I, oh my God, like, well, I, you know, I, I mean, it, it sounded like, you know, like, like a gunshot had gone off or a cannon. And we have lights in the spreaders that kind of shine down onto the boat itself. And I turn those on and I can see that the front sail is, has just exploded. And it's flapping violently in the wind, and it's flapping so violently that pieces of sail are just flying off into the darkness and just you know, disappearing as, as the sail starts to, starts to disintegrate. Cameron rushes below deck to rouse Charlie. Time is of the essence. Each wave pushes the sailboat further into a treacherous position. I go down and I and I know it's too dangerous for Hiroki to come up here. And so I get Charlie. I'm like, Charlie, you got to come up and we got to change the sails. We got to get another sail up because we're going downwind. So the, the wind is behind us and the waves are behind us. And that's that can be dangerous because as the boat goes down the waves, if you lose control and the boat starts to turn too much to the right or to the left, It'll actually turn sideways, and then it's going to roll over. And that's not recoverable sometimes. So, you know, that usually rips the sails off, and, and you know, that's kind of how boats are lost. And so the, the boat is, uh, I mean, it's going up, you know, 25 feet, and then falling 25 feet. It's going up 25 feet, and it's falling 25 feet. And it's pitch black, and you can't see anything. And I've got the the shredder, the shroud lights on, so you can kind of see the deck of the boat. You can see where to put your feet, but that's about it. And it's so loud, you can't. You literally have to like cup your hands around the other person's ear and yell as loud as you can into their ear for them to hear you. That's how loud the wind and the waves and you know all this uh, turmoil is about us. And so Charlie goes up. Uh, to change the sail, and we first we, we both go up to bring the sail down to a certain point. Now there comes a point where I have to go back and I have to drive while Charlie does some other stuff. So now I'm at the wheel, Charlie's up at the mast. All of a sudden, it just seems odd. I'm looking forward, and it looks like the front of the boat. I I can't see it. I can't see like the the bowsprit, and then I can't see a little bit closer I can't see the actual bow itself and then I can't see like the first third of the boat and I, I can't figure out like my mind is can't comprehend what's going on but it it just looks like the boat is disappearing basically if, if you if you're like a Star Trek fan and you watch like the Enterprise sail into like you know a dark cloud or something that's that's kind of what it looked like like the boat's just disappearing into this this dark mass and by the time it got to like the mainsail, uh, the main mast, 
I and it wraps around the main mast, I realize that what I'm looking at is a giant wall of water. And that, you know, there's a rogue wave that we've basically just kind of, you know, the boat's going up and down and up and down. And it happens to be going down when this wave comes. And so instead of riding over it, we just dive right, you know, right into it. And so this giant wall of water is just hitting the boat and engulfing it. You know, I mean, I literally realize just in time to take a really deep breath and hold on to the, the mast. The, my boat has two masts. There's a mast you know, in front of the wheel. And I grab hold of the mast in front of the wheel and hold my breath and just wait. And so I'm underwater and I'm holding my breath and I'm like, okay, the boat's gonna come up. Okay, now any minute now, I'm not gonna be underwater anymore. I'm still underwater. I'm still underwater. And now my mind starts to race and I'm like, oh my God, the boat is sinking. The boat is sinking and I am tied to the boat. My harness is connected to the boat and the boat's going to the bottom and I'm going with it. And I'm like, oh my God, I have got to unconnect. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta unconnect. So I literally grab hold of the ring that disconnects me. And then I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Never leave the boat. They say never leave the boat. I've read books. They say don't leave the boat. Don't leave the boat. Whatever you do, don't leave the boat. The boat will come back up. What if the boat doesn't come back up? No, the boat's going to come back up. I know it's going to come back up. I know it. What if the boat doesn't come back up? And I'm, I'm going through this. Should I, should, I, should I swim for it? Should I not? And, and now I'm starting to get lightheaded and I can't hold my breath anymore. And, I, and I'm starting to kind of... And I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass out. I got to make a decision before I pass out. It's a moment that seems to last an eternity. Cameron is dizzy, disoriented, until at last. And then the boat's up and I can breathe. And the entire cockpit is completely filled with water. And I'm, it's like I'm sitting in a bathtub. I'm not sitting in a boat. And I look and something's floating and I'm like, what is, and I, it's the compass. The compass has been ripped off and, and I, I grab it, you know, and I'm like, oh my God. And other stuff is like floating away, like the diesel fuel buckets that, you know, the, the containers for the fuel are floating away. The water's floating away. Like all this stuff that was like super tied down is now just kind of floating. So I'm grabbing stuff and, and I'm, I'm trying to, you know, figure out how to hold on to it and, and, you know, not let it go over the side and the, Boats bouncing and and everything. And I'm now, now I'm trying to you know drive with one hand because I don't want the boat to flip over. Desperate, Cameron scrambles to grab a flashlight from the Lilano's flooded cabin. And I turned it on, and that was the first time I actually saw the waves that we were in. It was the most just gut wrenching sight I've ever seen in my life. When I turned the light on and shined it across the ocean, all you see is huge 25 plus foot mountains of water that are moving and collapsing and there's white water and spray everywhere. And you know, some of these waves look bigger than the boat. And I just remember like, you know, there's a scene from the movie Aliens where, you know, they think they hear something 
and they turn on a light and they see all of the aliens, you know, are coming up the shaft and they realize like, oh my God, we're screwed. That is exactly how I felt. Like, oh my God, this is the end. You were, this is not survivable. And then it hits him. He was under for what felt like forever. What about Charlie? Where is Charlie? Cameron frantically pans the flashlight up. And I look up to see what, Char- what where's Charlie's at? What's Charlie doing? He's gone. He's not there. And I realize, oh my God, like Charlie's gone. He, he's been washed overboard. And maybe he thought like I thought that the boat was sinking and he disconnected. We have to, we have to turn the boat around. We have to get him because uh, we're not gonna leave him out here. But at the same time, we are struggling just to keep the boat floating, going in one direction. To have to turn the boat 180 degrees is is going to be, this might flip the boat and this might kill us all. And like I can barely keep the boat going in a straight line without getting sunk. How in the world am I gonna turn this thing around and, and conduct a search? I'm like, I gotta do it, I, I, I can't. And I need, I need Hiroki to help me do this. And so I, I go down and I get Hiroki to come up and Hiroki comes up. And again, brave as always, it's not lightning. Brave as ever, man, that guy's like, all right, let's do it. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm thinking we, get, we, gotta, we gotta get Charlie, we gotta get Charlie. We might die getting him. Like this is a legitimate, like this could be, this could be where the, where the boat gets flipped and this is the end. The fate of Charlie and of Cameron, Hiroki and the Lilino, when our story continues in our next and final episode. Surviving the Lilino is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Cameron Thurman. Cameron is writing a book about his experience on the Lilino, and we will update the show notes with a link to the book when it is available. Starring Henry Monfries as Cameron, Jonathan Regier as Charlie, and Austin Kuniyoshi as Hiroki. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Andres Coca. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening and subscribe now for future episodes.